I recently um, came across a documentary on Netflix about a famous singer. Now, the singer doesn't matter. Some of you would maybe know this musician. Some of you wouldn't. But what I thought was interesting was that documentaries like this give us glimpses into the lives of people that are famous and well-known. And I don't know if you've ever seen this before, something like this. But what was amazing to me was how this musician always had all these people around. It didn't now matter where they were going, if it was in the morning before they went anywhere. There were just people everywhere. I mean, we're talking about personal assistants, makeup artists, and, and uh, hairstylists probably a bodyguard, a manager, a personal driver. And then any number of friends or people who follow this person around and really what they do is take advantage of their, I think their notoriety and their wealth to be associated with someone who is famous. And this personal, and this musician even had their own personal masseuse. And throughout the show if this person needed to have a massage because of some issue, no matter where they were at, there was the masseuse right there. So just imagine the cost of having these people around you all the time. It's, it's amazing. And that's just the people who are with this person, not the other person, people that might be employed that you don't see very often. But famous people, no matter what, seem to draw a crowd. And not just a crowd of people who want to get close to them or meet them or get a photo with them. But just people that want to be around them to grab any sort of fame and wealth that they can grab off of the person too. It's really quite fascinating. And now there's one other position that a lot of famous people will have. And this is a position that's a lot more public, even though we might not realize it. But most celebrities have someone called a publicist. Now, what a publicist does is basically manage that person's public image. So whether that's helping them have a social media strategy to present themselves to the public or helping them prepare for interviews and doing damage control when this person does something that's not ideal but publicists are all about the image. So here's an interesting question. Now, this is what I want us to think about today. Did Jesus have a publicist? He was a pretty famous guy in his own time. There were a lot of people who followed him around everywhere. And he couldn't go anywhere without noticing, just like celebrities today. So did Jesus have a publicist? Now I actually think there's an answer to this question. But we have to start looking at roughly 450 to 500 years before Jesus came onto the scene. So we're going to start by looking at Malachi, what um, Alan read for us earlier. So if you want to open up to Malachi again, we're going to take a look at this passage um, and again in the Pew Bible, if you want to follow along, it's 830. And I strongly urge you to follow along so that you're able to track with where we're going. 
So 830, um, Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Now, Alan did a great job of giving us a little bit of background about Malachi. I'll just say a little bit more. So in 538 B.C., so 538 years before we went to A.D., so that means around 2,600 years ago, um, there was this person named Cyrus, and he was the emperor of the Persian Empire. And the Persian Empire had overthrown the Babylonian Empire. And actually, it wasn't the first Babylonian Empire or the second Babylonian Empire. It was the third Babylonian Empire. And it was the, the Babylonians were the, 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 na- the empire that eventually overthrew Israel. Now in 538, Cyrus overthrew, or 539, Cyrus and the, the Persians overthrew Babylon. So a year later, Cyrus gives what's called the Cyrus Decree. And what he does is he tells all of the people that the Babylonians had captured and brought to Babylon. He says, you may return to your homeland. So he has all these Israelites in captivity. Like Daniel, the stories of Daniel. Who is Daniel? Daniel is an Israelite that was really wealthy and smart. That was one of the top of the class of Jewish people. And he was brought from Israel to Babylon to become Babylonian. That's how the Babylonians took these countries that they, just, they overthrew and made them a part of their empire. So Daniel was a Jew living in Babylon, serving the king of Babylon. So all these Israelites were in Babylon. And now the Persians say, you can go back to where you came from. So when this was passed, all these exiled Israelites returned to Judea. Now the books of Ezra and Nehemiah talk about this. During this time... Jerusalem had to be rebuilt because the Babylonians had destroyed the walls and destroyed the city and left it in ruins. The priesthood had to be reestablished because there was no priesthood because there was also no temple. A new temple had to be built. So this was supposed to be a happy time, but if you read these books, it wasn't a happy time. There was all kinds of challenges. And in the end, the promises that the Israelites had been waiting for, the promise of that that king that was going to come from the line of David that we talked about last week. Remember, we talked about how Jesus comes as that king. They thought when they would go back in 539 B.C. that that king would come. But then they get there and the temple isn't what it used to be and there's not the notoriety and there's not the power. Israel is just a shadow of what it used to be. And now in that context, that's where Malachi is written. Because the people of Israel were waiting for their savior and their king that would make them great again. But they were still waiting. So now this is what Malachi says in verse 3, 1. Chapter 3, verse 1. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. So if we were to read all of Malachi, we'd see 
that the issues within Israel at this time were that there was lots of priests that were corrupt. So they were doing corrupt things. They were taking money. They were receiving sacrifices that weren't acceptable. And it was leading all of the Israelite people into sinful worship. And because of that, God was rejecting their worship. And the people are beginning to wonder why God is allowing this to happen. And he says, there will be a day whenever I send the one you're waiting for. But he says, before that person can come, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. So now if we think about in Jesus' day, we go back to his day. 500 years later, the people of Israel are still waiting. They're still waiting for this messenger who's going to come before the Lord or the anointed one or the Messiah or the new king. And they're still waiting. And now this is where we get to our passage for the day from Luke. So now if you want to turn to Luke, that's our gospel reading for today. And that's 890 in your pew Bible. So this is the situation. We have this tension because the people in Jesus' day are waiting for Messiah. And then they also have all of these other prophecies about this person that's going to come before. And they're going to know the Messiah is coming. And they're still waiting. And then this is what happens in Luke chapter 3 verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor over Judea, Herod Tetrarch over Galilee, his brother Philip Tetrarch of Eteria and Trachosius, and Lysians Tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. So what Luke does here with those names in those places is he grounds us in history. Just like we use dates, he's using these rulers to help us identify when this begins. So during all of those times, during the 15th year of Tiberius, when Pontius Pilate was governor and Herod was Tetrarch of Galilee and on and on, There was a man named John who got a word from God. Now that's not something we should overlook. Because if we read other prophets in the Bible, that is how prophetic narratives begin. That's how oracles begin about prophets. John receives a word from the Lord. But what is this word that John receives? In verse 3, Luke continues, he says, He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So Luke doesn't describe exactly what John preaches, but he says that it involves preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. 
So John receives this word from God, and then he begins to tell the Jewish people, repent and be baptized. But who is John? Now, we have an idea who John is because we've heard it before. But think about this. You're in Israel. You live in Jerusalem. And all of a sudden, you hear about this guy who's dressed a little bit weird And a bunch of people are going out into the wilderness to get baptized. Now, they didn't baptize like we do. That wasn't something normal. And the question people have to ask is, well, who is this person that all these people want to go see? Is he a prophet? Is he the Messiah? Well, this is who Luke tells us that John is. In verse 3-4, he says, As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in and every mouth and hill made low. The crooked road shall become straight, the rough way smooth. And all people will see God's salvation. So Luke and his fellow gospel writers, based upon John's own claims, identified John as the one written about in the book of Isaiah, because here in Luke, only Isaiah is quoted. But in Mark, this passage, the first verse of chapter 3 of Malachi, is also quoted with this. So they identify John the Baptist as this person who is coming before the Messiah. Now, in the time of Jesus, it was common for kings to have messengers who would come before them. They would come and say, this person is coming, get ready. They say, this person is coming, make sure that the town looks nice. Because not only did the messenger come to announce that the king was coming, but they also came to make sure that the king could be received by the town because the town was in good order. I mean, we like to know when we have company coming, right? Who doesn't like to know when company's coming? Do you like just the people to show up, right? Does anyone really like that? I mean, it's fun when you have people come over unexpectedly, but usually with our house, if you come over and we don't know you're coming, there might be uh, kids without all their clothes on. (laughs) There might be a dog who's unhappy in the kennel who would like to get out and as soon as you get there he's going to go crazy and want to jump all over you. There might be a bunch of dishes in the dishwasher and our table might be uh, covered in just bags and clothes. We like to know when people are coming. The kings in the first century sent messengers to make sure that their towns could be prepared to receive them, and also because they wanted people to be ready to celebrate. So if we think back about our question, did Jesus have a publicist? Someone who was proclaiming his coming and proclaiming and preparing people to receive him. If, he, if we ask that question, the answer is yes. John the Baptist was Jesus' publicist. Now, they didn't have that category. It doesn't quite fit. But that's how we need to think about John. He was coming to prepare people for
for Jesus to arrive. So John came as Jesus' publicist, and he announces that Jesus has arrived. Now John wants people to be ready, but he also, he wants people to know, to anticipate, but he also wants people to prepare. Does anyone have an idea of how John wanted people to repair, prepare? There's one word, I've already said it. Does anyone want to give a guess? What was John's preparation? What did he want people to do? Repent, exactly. He wanted people to repent, but why? Why did he want people to repent? Have you ever actually wondered that? I know that I wondered that. Did you actually know that you could wonder? It's okay for us to say, well, why did John want people to repent? You can ask that question. Well, if we keep looking at Malachi, the answer becomes more clear. So Malachi verse 3, 2, this is how he continues. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will set as a refiner and a purifier of silver. And who is he? He is the one who comes, who is the Lord, who is the anticipated one, the Messiah. So the messengers are waiting. So the messenger comes to prepare the way. And then the Holy One comes, or the Lord that's appointed, or the one who sits on the throne of David, or the Messiah, or whatever you want to call this person. He comes. But this is what God asks the people of Israel. He says, do you really want this person to come? He says, who can endure that day? Who can stand when he appears? Now that seems odd, but why is it that when Jesus comes, it's going to be a day that people cannot endure? Well, the answer that is given is because he is like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will set, sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. So what Malachi is actually doing is just doing, using two illustrations that his people understood that we might not actually get. So a refiner's fire was used to purify precious metals. So it could be silver, gold, something else. The gold would be, I don't know the official word or the right word, but it would have other metals with it. Or the silver, it's not pure silver. It's, when it's mined out of the ground, there's other silvers that are other metals that it's encased in so how do you remove those apart we have to use heat and then you take away the other metal and then you have the pure silver and gold so the only way to refine it is through heat and then when you have dirty cloth how do you clean it we have to use soap so both of these illustrations give the same example this messiah will come and clean his people so the sources of sin within the people of God must be removed if the people are going to live as God's people. Does that make sense? Jesus comes and he's, and he's going to establish a new way of living. And that means that the people who aren't living the right way need to repent or they need to, need to be removed. 
So during Jer- Jerus- uh, in Jerusalem during the time of Malachi, it was the priests, like I said, who were leading the people astray. And this is what Malachi says about the priests. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. So it actually might be the case that the people who were crying out to God the loudest were the priests. Because they're like, God, why isn't this the way you said it would be? We're supposed to be this great nation that has this great temple. And then what maybe is happening here, Malachi is saying, well, maybe the problem is you, the people who are wondering why God hasn't blessed Israel like you thought he would. Maybe you're the people that need to be purified. When the Messiah comes, he will set God's people right. Now this is why John calls on repentance. Because judgment and cleansing are an important part of the Messiah's arrival. So when Jesus comes, he will set God's people straight. Because he can only rule a people who are willing to follow him. And those who are not ready to be followed must be removed. I think we missed this part of Jesus' story. Because when it comes to Jesus, he expects his people to be obedient to him. And he expects them to follow the way of life he has set out for them. Now we've talked about this before. What this comes down to is Jesus wants to help us to actually live the way we're supposed to live. He says, I made you a certain way. And the only way you can actually live that way is if you follow me. So this is where we get to repentance. Now repentance isn't a word we use in the 2018 very often. In the days of Jesus, and in the Greek word, and I don't like to do this, um, but the, the roots of the Greek word, what it actually means is it has this idea of turning. That when you repent, it's not that you change your mindset or that you do something or you say something and that means that you're different. Repentance is about a 180 turn. You're heading one direction and you turn 180 degrees and you go the other way. So during this Advent season, I think it would be helpful for us to turn our lives away from the things that keep us from truly being human. We can think about it this way. We must turn from what we've done before Jesus comes. We must turn from what we've done before Jesus comes. But why do we do this? We do it because in the last two verses of Malachi, when the people of God have been repented and cleansed, then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord, as in the days gone by, as in former years. So why must we turn from what we've done before Jesus comes? Because when we do, it prepares us for worship. We cannot worship God when we have not repented of things in our life that keep us from living as humans, the way that we are made to live. 
when we don't live the way that Jesus made us, we're actually living less than human or less than our full potential. So we must turn from those parts of our lives and repent to follow Jesus. And when we do this, it prepares us to worship our Savior and King when he arrives. So during anticipation, a big part of the anticipation is the preparation. We need to get our own lives ready while we wait. Remember last week it was about following Jesus, it was about watching for Jesus, it was about trusting Jesus. Well, a big thing about following Jesus is repentance. We must turn from what we've done before Jesus becomes. Because when we're ready, we can celebrate. We can welcome him and not feel like we need to hide from him. We can welcome him and know that he's ready to receive us. Because another thing that people don't talk about is when Jesus returns into second coming, he comes to bring judgment. And all people will be judged. But we don't need to be worried about judgment if we've repented and followed Jesus. So did Jesus have a publicist? Yes. In an untraditional, probably nothing like the current celebrity way, Jesus had a publicist, John the Baptist. And John came to prepare the people of God for his arrival. And now he's still calling out to us today. He's calling out and he's telling us to repent. Your Savior is returning. Your King is coming and he wants you to be obedient. Turn your backs on the parts of your lives that keep you away from truly being human so that you can actually worship God. So this is my call to us during this Advent season. Search your life. What things are keeping you from truly being human? And consider turning on those things. We must turn from what we've done before Jesus comes. Now, repentance is a strange thing. I don't know if I quite understand it at all either. But I think a great place for us all to start is with honesty. Look at yourself and actually be honest about your problems. Take a look at your life, the way you've lived. But this is the good news of the gospel. Not only does God call us to repent, but God also gives us grace. We don't have to do it on our own. And there's a lot of grace to go around in forgiveness and patience. But in the back of our minds, we need to remember that Judgment Day is coming. That's why there's an urgency. We must turn from what we've done before Jesus comes. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we prepare for your son's arrival, may you help us to repent. May you show us the areas in our lives that we need to turn from and give over to you. May you forgive us for those shortfalls. May you help heal the circumstances in our lives that are affected by those 
decisions in those parts of us. And may you help us to be better at living out the true vision of what it means to be human. May you help us to follow your son. And may your spirit that lives in all of us empower us to be transformed to live as Jesus. We ask this all in your son's name, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.